Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In 1784, British men went to the polls. It was a pivotal contest in the aftermath of the American Revolution, following a slew of prime ministers who had tried and failed to form governments that satisfied the British electorate, and most importantly, King George III. British women played a critical role in this election, even though they could not vote. They canvassed for votes according to very specific social customs and accessorized their clothing and bodies to signal their support for the respective candidates. They wore muffs, passed out cockades and ribbons, and plied the electorate with beer. And when they slipped outside the bounds of those gendered customs, as the Duchess of Devonshire was alleged to have done, women were accused of electioneering rage. On today's episode, Dr. Kelly Fleming joins me to discuss how electioneering rage shaped 18th century British literature. Fleming is a literary scholar and historian who is the Monticello College Foundation and Andrew W. Mellon Foundation Fellow at the Newberry Library in Chicago. She is currently completing a book entitled Ornaments of Influence, Fashion Accessories and the Work of Politics in 18th Century British Literature. It's a study that explores the tension and anxiety in British literature about women's participation in British politics during the long 18th century. Fleming looks at a wide array of fashion accessories like muffs, cockades, and even ostrich feathers, which were procured through the trans-Saharan slave trade and served as symbols of royal authority. We began our conversation by learning how literary scholars like Fleming unpack novels and read them for evidence, and we then looked at what it means to do a close reading of a novel like Henry Fielding's 1740 book Tom Jones, before diving into Anglo-Irish author Mariah Edgeworth's 1801 novel Belinda, a work inspired in part by Edgeworth's disdain for women who failed to follow social norms. So get ready to add some novels to your reading list, folks, because you're about to encounter some electioneering rage with Kelly Fleming. Kelly, we've been talking for a while about having you on the podcast, and we've been you know, trying to find a topic and a time, and I'm glad it's finally worked out. But I thought as a way to get into our topic today, which is really about electioneering rage, although not in the way that our audience might think, we're going to be talking about Great Britain in the wake of the American Revolution and the politics there. But as a way to get into our conversation, I thought we uh, should lay out some ground rules, not like Fight Club or anything, but establish the fact that you and I come from different disciplines. Might be fair to say, or is it fair to say that you are are a, a literary scholar and that as such that comes with a different set of methodologies and rules for thinking about evidence and interpreting the past? Yeah, I'd call myself that, but I've also been thinking recently about actually calling myself a, a literary historian just because I take such a historical approach to literature. We'd love to hear about what kind of questions literary scholars ask. You know, historians ask very different questions about the past. We have asked very different questions about the evidence we use to reconstruct the past and interpret it. But you and I are both interested in the same things, which is to say more broadly the 18th century. And so we're looking at some of the same stuff. We're, we're both using novels, poems, uh, other forms of cultural evidence to tell our stories. And so I'm curious then to learn more about how you approach this stuff. Uh, and then later on, we're actually going to get into one of the novels that is central to your research. I will tell you the questions I tell students to ask of literature because I ask them as well. So there's two questions and the first question is always the first question. And it is, what is the text doing formerly? How is it like physically sort of constructed? So this means thinking about the words on the page. Are there some sort of like word patterns or relationships? What's the punctuation doing? Are there really weird metaphors and synecdoches? If it's a poem, thinking about spacing, thinking about line breaks. And in the 18th century too, it, it also, you get the added benefit sometimes of text inserting very strange things that you mm -hmm. have to address, like 
you're reading Tristram Shandy, you have to figure out why there's a black page, like 10 pages in, that's supposed to symbolize death, and also a page where you can draw your own widow Wadnam, which is the character, <laughs> who apparently is like, I don't know, so hot she defies description, so you're encouraged to draw her yourself. So I asked that question, and then the second question I ask is, what is the text trying to say? And the way I get to answer that question is by thinking both about the form, right, how it's constructed, which mm -hmm. I just talked about, and the content. So what is it literally saying and the relationship between the two? A good example, and it's the example I used to teach close reading in my first year writing class, is Sylvia Plath's poem, Metaphors, which is formally a poem that is nine lines and nine syllables, and then it's also full of like rather grotesque metaphors for pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So the form and the content kind of match and it's, it's very clear that it's a critique of the kind of cult of motherhood in the mid 20th century. So the actual physical construction of a text, like a book, like a poem, is as important as what the actual words are. Yes, uh, I mean, and you can take that to different levels. There are a lot of people in the field of literary studies largely who will think about different editions, different printings, what publication history is doing um, more broadly. I don't quite take it that far, but I, I do try to be aware mm -hmm. of it. So that actually raises a question in my mind about the relationship between an author and a printer, you know, the ways in which there are spacing in the text, things like that. Is that a collaboration between the author and the printer, or is that the author or the printer making decisions independent of each other? And then how do you how do you interpret then the author's actual intent? So it depends on individual examples. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's like there isn't like a yes or no answer to this. Um, so like for Tristan Shandy, Lauren Stern like fought to get his weird like black page, and he has like these little squiggles that are supposed to show how people think, right? Mm -hmm. That's like a, there's several pages of that. He had to like advocate for that to be part of the book, and that's the case a lot of the times if there's. I know Samuel Richardson and Clarissa, there's this section called the Mad Letters where it's like printed kind of sideways and he himself was a printer. So he was just like, we're doing it this way, right? Mm -hmm. It kind of depends, right? It does impact authorial intent. So that's really interesting because then you have, well, multiple ways of interpreting an individual text, but not, a, not only an individual text, but multiple editions of a text, say if it was printed in London or in the trade press in Dublin in the 18th century. Yeah, actually, the book we're going to talk about later, Belinda, I made a point of looking at the first Irish and first English editions because of a pair of quotation marks that I think I've identified the quote from. And I still need to contact Oxford and ask them to like scan me the manuscript to confirm my potential discovery. As part of asking these questions then, and you mentioned earlier, you used the phrase close reading. You know, all, all scholars uh, do some form of close reading, uh, historians certainly when they're examining evidence and, and texts or letters and things like that. But here, though, I gather it takes on a different meaning or a different connotation. Can you sort of walk us through what it means to actually do a close reading of a text? Yeah, I mean, having as someone who has read your work, I was trying to think about what we do differently. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the difference is that historians tend to focus mostly on content, right? Like what the mm -hmm. words are saying. Um, and we do a combination of form and content. If you were an English major, basically after the 90s, you have been trained to believe that historical context is essential to understanding a text. Um, you're trained to believe that 
texts are not created in a vacuum mm -hmm. and that the only way that you're going to understand them is to just be aware of what's going on when the text was written. That kind of way of understanding literature is called historicism. Mm -hmm. There are levels of historicism. I am probably on the extreme end of historicism. I think that's probably what people would say about my work. Let's use an example from my book that I know that you know about because it involves the Jacobite Rebellion, which mm -hmm. is you love. So um, <laughs> say, say you've watched Outlander uh, or you have read the Wikipedia summary of the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745. And then you're like, cool, I'm going to read Tom Jones because I heard it's basically Waverly coming from the opposite perspective. <laughs> sure. And so when you get halfway through the book and the Jacobite Rebellion comes rushing into the novel, you'll understand kind of what's going on, mm -hmm. right? You'll be like, oh, okay, this is Jacobite Rebellion. However, if that's like the limit of your historical research, if you kind of stay at the basic level of understanding the dominant events and don't kind of get into the weeds of stuff, you will understand why uh, Squire Western names his horse the Chevalier, <laughs> unless you understand that that is Bonnie Prince Charlie's nickname. And mm -hmm. you're going to miss out on so many references and allusions to Jacobite mythology and divine right philosophy. What I've done in, in the book and in my chapter about the Jacobite Rebellion is I use historical research to kind of help me track all of these word patterns. And so that when I had tracked all the patterns through the whole novel, I realized that Fielding had attached all of these Jacobite ideas to Squire Western, who is basically a goofy misogynist obsessed with the fact that he, quote unquote, begat his daughter. And the, the reason for that is to make Jacobitism look stupid. Like that is the point uh -huh. of Fielding's novel, which in many, many ways is anti-Jacobite. You're, you're um, talking about Henry, Henry Fielding here. Henry Fielding, yes. Um, so yeah, I, I use historical research sort of to help me track word patterns, inform the way I think about arguments. And so Tom Jones, was that published in what, 1749? Is that right? Somewhere around yeah. there? So the way people would have read this novel, for example, and, and you, you said you needed that historical context to sort of flesh out what he was saying. When people would have read that novel, it would not have been lost on them what he was getting at then. And so that, that raises in my mind the question of the audience, like who is he writing this novel for? The reading public includes, it, it is mostly men, right? Mm -hmm. It's mostly the educated, but women are increasingly over time. And it, I mean, you don't even have to be necessarily that educated to get some of these jokes because a mm -hmm. lot of them are like ballad related, which would have been sung on the street and you would just hear it. Mm -hmm. Like there's a part where I think that Fielding is referencing the ballad about what is it? It's like a king may have his own again or something. Um, Squire Westerners, like every man at a time when every man may have his own again, right? There's just these like little slippages mm -hmm. that he, he shoves in. If you could read the novel, then you mm -hmm. probably were just aware it, just based on popular culture. Well, one yeah. of the things that you just said that was really fascinating to me is you said since the 1990s or thereabouts, scholars such as yourself have been trained to use historical context and that uh, it's difficult to disassociate a novel like Tom Jones from its time period. So the natural implication then is that there was a time when people thought you could extract that novel from its historical time period and treat it on its own terms, whatever that may mean. So how does how did that work? I mean, I don't think personally it worked very well. <laughs> <laughs> it was around, I guess, like the 50s and 60s. It's called formalism. And it basically, you would just take the words on the page as face value. Mm -hmm. 
So speaking of text, you've already sort of mentioned this, but you are working on a book right now. And I'm wondering if you might tell us just a little bit about that, because it does help us set up the main part of our discussion today, which is about electioneering and the accessories that women wore as part of what you call electioneering rage or what was known as electioneering rage. But (laughs) what are you writing about? I am using representations of women's political accessories in British literature, and I kind of go from 1688 with the Glorious Revolution, where we kind of see the political parties develop in the wake of that, um, to 1832, which is the Second Reform Act, which is the first document, actually, to say that women can't vote. (laughs) Um, So technically, women were only barred from voting um, prior to that by custom, right, Mm -hmm. and like patriarchal violence, basically. I am looking at those representations of accessories to kind of explore and think through this paradox in which women were historically excluded from political institutions, but included in political culture, Mm -hmm. which is an incredibly weird position to be, but it is the position that women were in for centuries. So I'm interested in how women are helping to build the state and the empire despite being disenfranchised and despite having a legal status where they're like secondary or as I like to kind of cunningly say, accessory to the legal status of (laughs) their uh, husbands and fathers. And accessories are actually a way that disenfranchised people would use to kind of participate. This huge sort of material culture in the early modern period, caps, sashes, cockade, that um, disenfranchised people use to, to participate. Each chapter looks at representations of women who, because of their legal and political status, accessorize as a form of political participation and expression. There are a few things I'm trying to do as a scholar in my field, but one of them is I'm trying to kind of integrate a more nuanced understanding of women's legal and political position. On a, on a more basic level, I'm, I'm kind of trying to help recover the history of women's political participation prior to suffrage. So the thing we're all taught in schools, and I think this is true to an extent in the UK as well, although I'm not positive, is that women really weren't political actors prior to the suffrage movement unless they were like a queen. Mm-hmm. I remember being in like AP US history and it's like no women until, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stan, <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, And, you know, that's just, it's just not true. We are still deeply uncomfortable as a, as a nation. And I know this is true for, for Britain and I think places like Australia as well. We are deeply uncomfortable with women leaders and women's political action. And I think the fact that we don't know that history is related to that. It's not the whole reason why we're uncomfortable, but it's part of it, I would say. Part of the reason I'm interested in this weird paradox in which women are excluded from political institutions but included in political culture is because I'm thinking about women today, and I really don't think this paradox has been resolved yet mm-hmm. entirely. Like, it's better, but it's it's not entirely resolved because women are still underrepresented in institutions. Like, you see more women at protests, at least in my experience of going to protests, which mm-hmm. means that you are seeing more women in political culture than in political institutions like Congress and Parliament. Mm-hmm. Right. So I also talk kind of openly throughout the book and I'll have a conclusion about sort of contemporary accessories where I think through kind of like the history of accessorizing as a political strategy as well. So let's look at actually one particular election that you're interested in that it's part of your book, which is 
parliamentary elections of 1784. This is a year after the peace treaty with, well, with the former colonies were signed, now the independent United States. The American victory at Yorktown in 1781 sort of sets off a, you might say, a cascading effect in the British government, especially in 1782, where Lord North resigns, the Marquis de Rockingham comes in, the Earl of Shelburne is also prime minister for a time. And then you get eventually this fun little coalition government called the Fox North government, consisting of Lord North, prime minister who oversaw much of the American Revolution, or at least in the loss of the colonies, and Charles James Fox, who George III hates. Hates so much. Hates him so much. And so he already feels abandoned by Lord North. And then here comes Lord North back again in coalition with someone he detests. And then we have an election in 1784. So set this up for us. And then let's look at the novel that you are reading okay. in that election. So right before the election, right, the king basically gets rid of Fox and North. He dismisses the coalition and kind of sets up William Pitt as prime minister in a way that Fox and North feel is highly unconstitutional, shall we say. <laughs> um, and uh, Pitt doesn't have a ton of support. So the Westminster election of 1784 is kind of a referendum on Fox and Pitt because basically Westminster is like the largest constituency in England. Mm -hmm. So in general, it is an important election, right? So you have Charles Fox running and then you have uh, Cecil Ray, who is kind of like Pitt's guy running alongside Admiral Hood, who is an, ex he's like a respected naval hero. So mm -hmm. everyone supposedly kind of thinks that he's gonna, he's gonna get one of the two seats. So it really comes down to Fox and Ray and Ray is Pitt's guy. What happens is that Fox and Hood win. And a lot of people believe that Fox won because Fox had a team of women who were incredibly good at politics helping him win. And the reason this event is important to me is because this is a, a referendum on women's political participation in the mm -hmm. 18th century. So it was completely normal and ordinary for women to participate in elections in the 18th century. This moment in, and the rest of the 1780s leading into like the French Revolution, right, it becomes less acceptable for women to do this. In what ways were they participating in the election? The reason they were particularly helpful and that everybody kind of knew about this election is because Fox had the Duchess of Devonshire, Georgina Cavendish on his side, and she was like a literal celebrity at this mm -hmm. point. And then <laughs> you also had Mary Robinson, who was a poet and a very famous actress, who just so happens to be the Prince of Wales' mistress, also <laughs> canvassing for Fox because the Prince of Wales hates his dad. <laughs> so it, it's, it's very much in the public eye. And they do a number of things, um, these women, and there's a whole group of them, and I'm skipping over a bunch of them, but they canvass, right? So they go around Westminster and ask voters for their votes. They try to persuade them of voting in a number of ways. Sometimes they like go into shops and buy stuff. They wear fox muffs, fox fur muffs uh -huh. to show their support. They participate in parades and processions. They distribute cockades and ribbons and sashes, and they're also decked out in cockades and ribbons and sashes. They're wearing blue because Charles Fox loves George Washington so much that he changed the wig color to blue, buff, and blue, right? So the famous wig post is buff and blue and Mrs. Crew, <laughs> who is another hamster. They're also responsible for treating, which is a fancy way of saying getting the voters drunk, right? They give them food and beer. Um, and they're also, you know, talking to voters' wives and families and getting to know them. And 
these elections kind of work by a sort of like ritual inversion of class where the upper classes condescend right to their tenants mm -hmm. or the lower the like lower class enfranchised voters right and you needed 40 shillings worth of property and membership in the Anglican church to vote in this period. So they're doing all of these social things that voters believe are very, very important. They're viewed as customs, really. And that if you don't fulfill these customs, so like if you are the wife of a candidate and you are not going to talk to like the mayor's wife, it is a huge snub. If you are not having a ball or something and dancing with the voters' daughters, it is the snub. The voters believe that stuff like treating and the accessories and the attention are their right during elections. Mm -hmm. So if they don't get them, it's a problem. But it's also a problem if women take these customs to a place where they kind of defy class and gender boundaries, mm -hmm. which the Duchess of Devonshire did. She was such an effective canvasser because she she liked to like walk in the streets and talk to people. Um, and a lot of women would do things from carriages or out of windows to kind of keep them their bodies like literally away mm -hmm. from the lower classes. And she's, you know, in shops buying stuff. She's standing godmother to children. Uh, she's talking to people. And this is why if I, I literally spend a month looking at these prints, there's so many prints probably hundreds of prints of the Duchess of Devonshire being overly familiar, shall we say, with lower class male voters. She's accused of, and I'm doing square quotes now, even though you can't see my hands. She's accused <laughs> of kissing butchers and quote unquote canvassing numbers. That's mm -hmm. what the prints like to show her doing. She's literally pressing the flesh. Yeah, let's use that euphemism, I guess. I don't really, if you ever read my work, you will see that I refuse to use euphemisms, but we're on a uh -huh. podcast, so we can use euphemisms. <laughs> yeah, I mean, kissing, I mean, electoral kisses were a thing, but apparently her sister, Lady Duncanon, was the one who was, like, allowing herself to be kissed, not the Duchess of Devonshire, but they just said it was her, because... Mm. I mean, she was already this woman who was, like, known for drinking and gambling and, like, really cool fashion. But she stepped outside the bounds of what is considered yes. normal social and gender yes. custom. She gets accused of electioneering rage, right? Mm -hmm. Which is this charge against, it's usually against women. It's a charge that combines, like, class, gender, and sex critiques mm -hmm. with political corruption. So, right, kissing butchers is a vile violation of like the integrity of an election or like flirting with a voter is and like talking him out of voting for Ray right is a form of corruption and because the press realized that the Duchess and her compatriots were so successful there's just like they just unleash poems prints newspaper articles just spewing misogyny about mm -hmm. all of them uh, mostly her but all of them and it becomes a card of culture basically at that yeah. point there's so much of it so in our own time when we're right now in the middle of election cycle we're worried about or some folks are worried about the integrity of the election with respect to say mail-in ballots in this period they're worried about the integrity of the election because women like the duchess of devonshire are stepping outside what are considered the boundaries of their political participation yeah i i think there is like a a version of election rage that still exists. It's it's a bit different, obviously. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned the profusion of poems and other forms of literature that come out about this election. One of the things you focus on in your book is a novel called Belinda. Yes. 
which some of our listeners may have read if you're aficionados of 18th century literature. Uh, I would be thrilled. (laughs) (laughs) They're probably already ahead of the game. And this is published in 1801, is that right? 1801. So this book was published in 1801, and it's dealing with a lot of the themes uh, about gender and class relations and political culture that you see in this election in 1784. Yes. Let's look at Belinda itself here for a minute by Mariah Edgeworth. Tell us what is it, what's the conceit of the novel? I mean, I think the entire book is actually a book about anxieties about um, what I call and what men would have called back in the day, petticoat government, mm-hmm. right? Which is like entire rule by women, you know, matriarchies, uh, Amazonian government, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I personally think it sounds like a great idea, but Edgeworth does not. So um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Edgeworth combines references to this election, stuff with the French Revolution and Mary Wollstonecraft to stoke anxieties about mm-hmm. women's political participation. And then I argue that she, in Belinda and also a couple other novels, that she's kind of advocating for a form of women's political participation that's limited, that has women in secondary and subordinate roles. It's it's kind of the existing system mm-hmm. that the Duchess of Devonshire used, but with the caveat that they have to fulfill all the electoral customs and stay within their gender and class roles. The titular character of the novel is Belinda, right? So mm-hmm. it opens with Belinda, who is a young lady, and um, she's the last of her sisters to be married, and she's raised by her aunt Stanhope. And her aunt Stanhope has arranged for Belinda to spend the season, which is the winter time, which is the it's basically the party time of London's elite. It's it's typically how you would find a husband mm-hmm. or try to find a husband. It, it's the same thing as coming out, right? Debbie Tom Ball is kind of the same thing. Her aunt has arranged her for her to spend the season with Lady Delacour, who is basically the most popular woman in London. And what happens is that Belinda finds out very quickly by listening to Lady Delacour's history, that Lady Delacour is actually miserable and that she's made a lot of bad decisions in her life, including possibly marrying the wrong man, but also uh, doing things like participating in elections that resulted in Mm -hmm. an addiction to laudanum. So she's actually, Lady Delacour, fun fact, kind of stoned throughout the whole novel. Very nice. Uh, good to just occasionally, you know, it's good to remember that when you read the novel is that actually she's high <laughs> she's uh, doing all of this. But Belinda learns from her history, which is a cautionary tale for every woman reader, including mm-hmm. the election part, um, to basically hold true to feminine virtues, right? And to believe in family and marriage uh, with the right man. And that things like being educated to be a rational human being are very, very important. And Belinda kind of realizes this probably within the first 50 pages, right? So Belinda's done. She's grown up, right? Uh, She's not married yet, but she's Mm -hmm. like gone through the whole, I needed to learn to be an adult and a rational being thing that a lot of 18th century novels talk about women having to go through and learn in, in the hard way usually. But Lady Delacour actually gets help from Belinda. Belinda like helps her reform into a proper wife and mother over the course of the 300 or 400 pages. I see. Um, so it's, it's kind of a bait and switch. You're like, okay, this is another yacht novel about a young lady who's got to get married and like learn the hard way to follow the norm. Um, but actually she mm-hmm. learns that really fast and it's about her helping her friend kind of reform. It's, I think it's underrated as a novel of female friendship, actually. This Mm. is a novel that is actually about how female friendship is important. 
And one of the things that Lady Delacour is doing in the novel, right, is or as part of her past, is she was distributing those cockades and those ribbons. So she's participating in the very thing that Belinda wants to destroy by the end of the novel. I don't know if she wants to, I don't know if Belinda wants to just to destroy. Um, but she thinks it's a bad idea, let's say. <laughs> um, I mean, Edgeworth actually goes on to like hate her and calls her a stick and stone in a letter, and it's really funny. Like she's so boring. It, like Edgeworth thinks she's boring. But Lady Delacour is fun. And Edgeworth doesn't herself like shenanigans, but Lady Delacour likes shenanigans. So it's a very fun read. A lot of the shenanigans involve the election. Before I go through the election, I should maybe talk a little bit more about Edgeworth and how she understands property and, and landowning because it's kind of central to the way that I read the election. Yeah, I think that'd be great because uh, what you just said about Edgeworth thinking that Belinda's boring and finding Lady Delacour fun almost strikes me as Edgeworth wrestling with two sides of herself. And maybe, you know, I don't know if that's the right interpretation or if there's a way to read her into that novel trying to figure out, you know, what is the best course in life for a woman of station. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that is going on, and I think I side with uh, the sad conservative <laughs> vision mm -hmm. of Edgeworth. And what is that vision? Okay, so let's we have to we have to go back to 1619 to understand what I'm about to say. <laughs> so, uh, Mariah Edgeworth and the Edgeworth is an Anglo-Irish settler. So, in 1619, her ancestor Francis Edgeworth received 600 acres from James I as part of the usual plantation projects in Ireland where they were trying to basically bring in English Protestants and mm -hmm. get rid of Irish Catholics. Edgeworth is born in England, but in 1782, which is I think when she's about 14, they moved to Ireland and her father wants to like take up the estate and actually do it right because his ancestors were really bad landowners. They gambled all the money away and almost lost the estate. There's a rebellion at one point. They go to Ireland and they literally live in a place called Edgeworth Town. So they go to Edgeworth Town and they take a resident in the estate. And the first couple of things they do, they or the, her father does, is he actually reforms the sort of system on the estate itself. For the better, really. Like he gets rid of all the stupid feudal do, dues that they were expecting tenants to pay. You must bring me a turkey at this time mm -hmm. and you must do several hours of work for me at this time. They also kind of enact a policy of religious toleration, which is actually a pretty big deal in the 18th century to like be an Anglo-Irish landowner and be okay with the fact that your tenants are Catholic. Mm -hmm. Actually advocates for Irish Catholics enfranchisement. A very big deal. He's a, he's a super Whig. He loved the French Revolution before he got that. I'm convinced that Edgeworth read Whig stuff growing up. Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of the reason that the novel includes the Westminster election of 1784. <laughs> but Edgeworth becomes a part of this new system on the estate. She becomes an accountant and rides out with her father. I think it's in March and September to do all the rent and everything. Mm -hmm. And they both kind of understand the landowner tenant relationship as a reciprocal relationship where each side has customs and obligations that have to be fulfilled. And if everybody does their duty, it will be like peace and harmony, right? It is a very rosy view <laughs> of this relationship, to say the least. I mean, I, I have not read an Edgeworth novel, and I've read many, that doesn't involve her talking about this relationship. And every single one is problematic. And the most problematic is in a novella called The Grateful Negro, which puts that relationship in the context of a plantation in the West Indies. My point is, is that Edgeworth wholeheartedly believes 
in this theory of landowning, right? Mm-hmm. That it's a reciprocal relationship, that everybody has to fulfill their duties and customs, and that it's important to do so both for the family and for the lives of the tenants, but also kind of for the nation, actually. The reason I connect it to elections is that all that stuff about customs and duty Mm -hmm. suits perfectly with what women were expected to do during elections, right? They were responsible for the custom of treating. They were responsible for having dinners with the mayor and the mayor's wife and and, and all of those other things, right? So if you read elections and the election scene in this novel in particular through her landowning, which really you should do because the entire electoral system is dependent on property and landowning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it just makes sense too you get a very different view of the election. It's not just like this funny thing that happened that results in a duel where women are wearing pants, um, (laughs) which does happen and is fun, but it's a little bit more sinister. So using your close reading skills, take us through what you see in Belinda, especially with respect to your core interests of accessories and how women are displaying their political participation in the culture, but not necessarily in electoral politics via enfranchisement. Okay, yeah. So every close reading I do in the chapter is about cockades and ribbons, right? So I'm focused specifically on the sort of electoral duty that women had of distributing cockades and ribbons and sashes and and other things like that. And the reason I'm focusing on that in particular has to do with the fact that accessories and sort of political material culture more broadly are a way that we can recover women's political history in in literature. The sort of opening of Lady Delacour's history where she's like, I married a man because I thought I could govern him and it didn't work out. She also has an ex-best friend who is her nemesis and her name is the odious Mrs. Lettridge. She's odious, that is her word. Uh, She's her nemesis and they have rival parties and just like rival parties to have rival friends get into like fights. There's literally an entire party they have about like fighting over an aloe plant at some point. One of their arrival events is the election. So turns out Mrs. Lettridge is a bit of a woman politician, right? And her husband is going to run for parliament in the country and the state that they own. And you know, Lady Delacour is like, this is the time for me to get my revenge, basically. So she goes out to the country where her and her husband have an estate. So they decide to have Harriet Freak, who is her best friend, but soon to be her ex-best friend's cousin, run for parliament. Out go the advertisements for the candidates, the candidate statements. And because it's literally landowning women's job to fulfill electoral customs, Lady Delacour and Harriet Freak deck themselves out in electoral accessories, and then distribute them to tenants and, and voters and their families. However, and right, this is the one time actually in the novel where Lady Delacour fulfills an electoral custom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she does exactly what she's supposed to do. However, she does it really, really badly. Uh, insofar as she's a little too friendly, a little too sexy, possibly when she distributes (laughs) these accessories. It seems to be that this particular passage is a reference to the Duchess of Devonshire explicitly because Mm -hmm. of the friendliness, right? And there are also explicit references to Prince 
of the Duchess of Devonshire in that paragraph. She, I would say she's kind of the inspiration for Lady Delacour. I don't think it's like an allegory and, or a one-to-one sort of relationship, but I think she inspires this and she is the most well-known political figure really in the second half of the century. So it's not that surprising. So Edgeworth shows Lady Delacour doing what she's supposed to be doing it, but doing it wrong. And what happens from here is that Lady Delacour does not do any of the electoral customs that she's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And the reason Edgeworth shows, like offers a negative representation is I think because she is worried about women who have limited educations in this period using these electoral sort of privileges or prerogatives that they have as landowners come like com- coming together like that she views that as a recipe for disaster so yeah. she's going to show it as a disaster and an effort to say hey if you do these customs right if you fulfill them all and you uh keep within the confines of your gender and class role it's fine right you're doing your job to your family and your land and your nation if you do that after they distribute cockades and ribbons, Lady Delacour realizes that her nemesis, Mrs. Lettridge, is obsessed with the baskets of cockades and ribbons. And Lady Delacour then thinks it would be hilarious to draw Mrs. Lettridge in a political cartoon about the baskets. So she draws a cartoon called The Ass and Her Panniers. So like a donkey with some <laughs> baskets full of ribbons. And everyone thinks it's so funny, right? And Mrs. Lettridge is pissed as hell, uh, and actually says, I wish I were a man because I would challenge you to a duel for this. Mind you that drawing a political cartoon is something that women do not do, right? Women mm-hmm. are not, this is not a, an electoral responsibility for them. They're not allowed to do it. It's very bad. So she's taking on masculine political behavior. But then Lady uh, Mrs. Lettridge says, I wish I could challenge you to do to a duel. And then Lady Delacour is like, you know what? Yeah, let challenge me to a duel, chicken, basically. <laughs> and uh, her Harriet Freak is like her hype woman, basically being like, yeah, let's duel. It's it's ridiculous. So then the duel happens, right? So they dress up in breeches and go out to a field. <laughs> and mind you, this is all because of a cartoon that had cockades and ribbons in it. Uh, they go into a field and. Mrs. Lettridge is like, oh, I hurt my finger, so I can't, like my shooting finger, so I can't shoot with my right hand. I'd have to shoot with my left, which isn't really fair, right? Which is the excuse to get out of shooting each other. Right. So then they're like, all right, let's just shoot in the air for the sake of honor like men do. And Lady Delacour's gun actually backfires into her chest and it has like this bruise that becomes infected. And she's later sees like a, a quack doctor who tells her it's cancer. And this is how she gets addicted to laudanum and is high for like a whole novel. <laughs> but anyway, after they shoot in the air, the gunshots, right, make people notice that there's a duel. Mm-hmm. And they realize that it's women dueling. And so the mob of men proceed to chase them around the countryside until uh, this guy, their friend, Clarence Hervey basically distracts the mob (laughs) and saves them from being ducked like witches, ducked like witches under the water. Wow. And I talk about, right, how, what it means for Lady Delacour to be engaging in this masculine political behavior Mm -hmm. and also for a mob of men to try to reassert sort of gender dominance by physically lowering aristocratic women, right, under the water. Because that's what ducking is. And... Obviously, then everybody knows about the women's dueling, 
this whole time, Lady Delacour is dueling and drawing cartoons. She's supposed to be, like, visiting tenants, throwing parties, talking to people, having a ball, right? Giving out beer. She's supposed to be doing all these things. She's not doing that. She's consumed with revenge and vanity. Obviously, all the voters, Lady Delacour says, they go poll for a man whose wife was, quote, a proper behaved woman. I see. End quote. Right. And so both of their candidates lose the election because of their shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, I mean, because of the shenanigans, but also because they did not fulfill their electoral responsibilities as landowning women. Right. So this is how the Edris settler politics comes in, is that it's, they do not hold up their bargain or their side of the reciprocal relationship. I talk about how this proper behaved woman is nameless and that's probably on purpose because she, if she had a name, we would know who she is and she wouldn't be kind of like behind the screen or the cover, just to bring mm-hmm. the right? The cover of her husband, right? And I think because this woman wins the election, she's actually a model for what Edrith wants women's political participation to be, which is she wants it to exist, but it needs to be in the name of land and family and, right, like at the service of your husband or, or your father or your family. So if, if this is a cautionary tale, as you suggest, do we have a sense of how it was received by uh, the reading public? By 1801, after, you know, Britain is very, very aware of like the Women's March in, on Versailles in 1789. They're very aware that during the tower, there were a bunch of women who would knit in front of the guillotine. And Edgeworth herself is aware very especially, actually, of the fact that Irish women and men, three years before this book came out, tried to overthrow their imperial overlords, <laughs> right? And there were pike men and pike women running around Ireland, burning down Anglo-Irish homes. And Edgeworth's home is probably, the Edgeworth house is spared probably due to their religious toleration, but they have to flee. By 1801, the tide has turned a little bit on women's political participation. It's hard to do it publicly anymore without completely ruining your reputation. It strikes me is that Edgeworth is thinking in the same kind of conservative vein as, say, Edmund Burke. Yes. Uh, from that period. And they're both Irish and confusing politically. <laughs> exactly. And in whereas, you know, Burke very famously came out in sort of in favor of the American Revolution, at least saying he understands and the justifications the revolutionaries are raising. Whereas he supported the the color change for George Washington. Right. And and the, but then, you know, <laughs> reflections on the French Revolution, when he sees the that revolution as sort of laying bare what happens when you upend completely established traditions in the old social order, uh, you get chaos and anarchy. Seems like those same sort of impulses are present in this novel as well. Yeah, they actually are similar. And I think Edgeworth does see herself sort of with Burke, right? Mm -hmm. Like on that kind of conservative side, even though like they're both these people who have liberal and conservative impulses and it's very confusing. And uh, one thing I tried to do in writing this chapter, my dissertation was to try to understand how that exists. And I think the answer is property, right? Both Mm -hmm. liberalism and conservatism are dependent on property. Um, and they both love property. That's like very clear in Reflections of the French Revolution, where he's like, how dare you confiscate church property, even though the English did exactly that under Henry VIII. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's this, it's this very similar impulse. 
Well, Kelly, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm really glad that we finally found a time to talk. Uh, I know it's been a long time coming and I'm looking forward to your book. And it sounds like I've got some reading to do over the weekend, at least a couple of novels that I think I should probably check out. Yeah, I think you especially like need to read Tom Jones. You need to read <laughs> it. Um, it's very funny. It's it's really long. It's like 900 pages, but it's very funny. I laugh out loud when I read it, even though he's misogynistic a lot of the time. Belinda, you know, there's a, like Belinda's got, there's explicit references to Edmund Burke, right? In Belinda. Yeah. You know, the t- draw, uh, there's a line about the torn drapery, basically, that he says in the reflection. So like, yeah, these are these are books for you, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be sure to check them out at my local library or at least probably on Hottie Trust at some point. All right, Kelly, thanks so much. Stay safe. Enjoy Chicago, at least as much as you can right now. And enjoy the Newberry because that's a great place to be. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me and um, allowing me to talk about my work and for not asking me about Scott's Law because I know you want to. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the, uh, we'll get to that you part. You me another time e- about exactly. weird legal terms that are different according to English and Scottish law. So. There you go. All right. We'll see you later. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's media department. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your favorite programs. Have a question for the podcast team? Send it to us at conversationspodcast at mountvernon.org, and we might feature it on the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.